0: Father God, we're just so thankful that you have called us into your family and that you have given us um, this new position in Christ um, to be brothers and sisters who not only um, shares in each other's um, mutual salvation, Lord, but we also share each other's burdens and our outworking of our salvation together in community. And so I thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to stand before your people um, to delve into your word to learn more about this wonderful salvation that you have given to us um, by your grace. And so Lord, we just pray that you'll open our hearts and our minds to understand and to receive your word. And we pray Lord that as we hear that we are not forgetful hearers, but that we are faithful doers of your word. And so Lord, we thank you again and we praise your name, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've just got to be me. How many of you have ever heard that saying before? I've got to be me. I've got to be myself. I don't want anybody trying to make me into somebody that I'm not. So, perfect example of this, which I've said this before too, but I remember quite a few years ago working with a gentleman who um, profess to be a believer in Christ and every time you came around he's like look I've got to be me basically letting me know that you're going to hear some things that may not sound right (laughs) you might see some things that may not sound right but just know I've got to be me how many ever been around people like that how many of you are maybe those people that do that I've done that before confessing right now since we've just had confession and I always found this interesting because we had some great conversations about the Lord and even just how the Lord changed his life, brought him from being in a gang, brought him from selling drugs, doing all these crazy things. And it was clear that his life was markedly different than what it had been, but there were still some things that he held on to where he's like, look, this is me. I've got to hold on to this. You'll just have to excuse me and accept me as I am. And I understand that all of us as believers, we struggle with these different um, things from our former life that crop up every now and again. And many times we see that most assuredly in our work environment. We're around different people with different personalities, different backgrounds, some of them professing to be believers, and many that will let you know right out, I don't want your Jesus. Amen. And so when we're in those environments, many times we are with the struggle of how do we show up authentically as Christians um, in other words and I'm sure many of you have heard this term before showing up to work with your whole self how many of you have heard that term before yeah pretty popular now and so really when I hear that and even in some of the work that I do in workforce development and even in um, a field called industrial organizational psychology this this whole idea about being authentic And being real resonates and is seen as a vital part of a person's well-being in the workplace. I don't think anybody really wants to come into their work environment or any other environment for that matter and feel like they're not being genuinely themselves or feeling this struggle of trying to be something that they truly are not. Any of us ever been in that situation where you come into an environment, come into a certain cultural setting, Some of us maybe have felt that even in our church life where you step into that context and you feel like you're being squeezed to be something that you're not quite. And so just thinking about my good friend that I used to work with saying, I've got to be me, I have to be myself. And some of that was a mix of genuinely showing decent Christian attributes in his lifestyle and some of that showing some of those past worldly attributes. He said, either way, I have to to be me. And so, again, this is the struggle for all of us as Christians to be authentically Christian while still acknowledging where God has brought us from, especially when we're engaging those who are not a part of the family of faith. And so the question is, how do we cultivate authentic Christian conduct in the places where God has us to show up? And to show up with our whole selves as a Christian while still recognizing that we are saved from our sins and being able to share that authentically with the world around us. So I would invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 8 through 10, a familiar passage for many of us. And the only reason I'm doing this is because I believe I heard this in um, Tim's sermon, I'll ask if you can to stand with us for the reading of God's Word. And not just for that reason, in reverence to God's Word also. But. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And verse 8 begins and reads, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Verse 9 reads, Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And verse 10 finally reads, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. You may be seated. And so... For the next, um, the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to be looking at God's grace as it impacts the work of God in our lives and through us also to the rest of the world. But before we really delve into this particular passage, I want to go ahead and give kind of a high-level understanding of the book of Ephesians. And so... What we need to understand about this book is that it really is divided into two sections. If you look at chapters 1 through 3, this is dealing with the calling of the Christian. And so it's dealing with the doctrine of salvation and our understanding of our new position in Christ. And so it's rich with this language about being in Christ. So you'll see and hear this motif over and over again, in him, in Christ, in him, in Christ. Also, too, what we pick up in uh, chapter 1 in particular, we hear about predestination and how God has, from eternity past, already preordained us to be in his family. And so that's chapters 1 through 3 giving us this rich theology of, of who we are in Christ and our place in the family of God and being one new man, Jews and Gentiles being brought together in Christ. And so that's why in chapter 3 we hear about the mystery of the gospel, which is that the Gentiles have the inheritance in Christ just like the Jews do. And so we have doctrine on this one spectrum in chapters 1 through 3, dealing with our calling in Christ. But chapters 4 through 6 deal with our conduct in Christ. And so we see a series of, of statements using this Greek word called peripateo, which means to walk around or how we go about our daily lives. And so there are about five places where this is mentioned, but it marks out the life or the walk of the Christian who understands his place in Christ. And so what we see is a new person in Christ, not only individually, but corporately, Jews and Gentiles showing up as the very image of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so when we think about our calling and right doctrine and when we think about our conduct and right living, neither one of those can stand alone. It's not enough to say that I'm a believer and I believe these different truths about the gospel and not have Christian conduct to support that. On the other end, too, it's one thing also to go out there and try to live Christianly, but not have a mind or understanding of what our place is in Christ according to God's word. And so you need both. It's a person that is standing firmly on two legs to be able to run the race that God has set before us, to be ambassadors for Christ and to be witnesses of the kingdom of God. Amen? And so we see these two halves of the book the calling and the conduct. And so What we realize quickly as we come back to verse 8 in chapter 2, and as we also see um, just even starting off in chapter 1 with verse 6 and 7, that God's grace is the common thread and theme throughout the book. And so when we look at verse 8, again, it reads, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And so rather than dealing with grace just yet, we've got to look at that little conjunction for, or gar in the original. What that means is that there's something that happened before that these verses are explaining. And so in the immediate context, if we look at verse 7, it says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace, this is God, in kindness towards us, in Christ Jesus. And so we see that it's connecting with grace in verse 7 to explain further what that means. It's unpacking the riches of God's grace. And so even to understand that better, I think we might need to move back a little further. So if we look at the beginning of chapter 2, we see that the Apostle Paul lays out for us two extremes. We have the old life. And so if we look at chapter two, verse one, it says, and you, and he's addressing these Ephesian believers, which most of them are Gentiles, but there is a mixture of Jews in this congregation. But he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so He highlights that before grace, there was a life before. As we mentioned before, and just using the example of of my friend, a dear brother who I still um, communicate with today, I just got to be me. But some of that me was from a lifestyle that was dead in the eyes of God, steeped in trespasses and sins. And so understanding that as a believer, And when we think about our calling, our calling is founded in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We were not saved to live the way that we used to live. Would, Would we all agree with that? When we look here, it says they were dead in their trespasses and sins. And so what we see is that there was a clear delineation between the life, the new life that Christ has purchased for us through his blood and that which We were accustomed to before faith in Christ. But, and again, I'm not going to go through all the scriptures, but we see clearly the former life. But then when we jump down to verse four, what do we see? And I'm pretty open with you all interacting. So what do we see in verse four? What conjunction do we see there? But, and but who? But God. You were dead, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. That's great news and for us as believers especially as we're going about our daily lives whether we're at work whether we're at play wherever we show up at we show up authentically understanding that we were once dead we actually had our association with the rest of the world and how they thought, even on our best days. And we know here in the South, and let's be real, church is something that most of us grew up doing, right? But how many of us know that church is not what saves us? It's not us coming together that saves us and looking the same and kind of following the same course and listening to the same music. It's whether we have truly placed faith in Christ as a result of God's grace and him drawing us to himself. And so when we show up wherever we're at, we show up understanding where we once were, but knowing where we are now positionally in Christ. Amen. And so we see that if we go back to verse eight, by grace, we have been saved through faith. The means or the agency by which we come into this great and wonderful salvation is God's grace, and he graciously allows us to be laid hold of by faith, which if we remember from the Gospels, even the faith that we have, God gives us. We're incapable of laying hold to the salvation of God. There's nothing in and of ourselves, which is when we come further down, It says what in verse 8, in that B part? And this is what? Not of yourselves. It's not of our own doing. It is the gift of God. It's his grace, his unmerited favor and kindness to us that brings us before God empty. As a matter of fact, and if I can uh, quote from John Calvin's um, commentary on Ephesians, Calvin says, Ought we not then to be silent about free will and good intentions and fancied preparations and merits and satisfactions? There is none of these which does not claim a share of praise in the salvation of men, so that the praise of grace would not, as Paul shows, remain undiminished. When, on the part of man, the act of receiving salvation is made to consist in faith alone, All other means on which men are accustomed to rely are discarded. Faith then brings a man empty to God that he may be filled with the blessings of Christ. Let me read that again. Faith then brings a man empty to God that he may be filled with the blessings of Christ. And so he adds, Not of yourselves. That claiming nothing for themselves, they may acknowledge God alone, they may acknowledge God alone as the author of their salvation. Therefore, because man cannot work for and earn salvation, there is no room for boasting, as we see further in the text. We can't take any credit for our salvation nor praise ourselves for being so good that God decided, based on our own merit, to save us. God is the sole author of our salvation. He needed no help in orchestrating it, nor does he need any help in completing it and bringing it to fruition. Amen? And so we see that if we we look back again at chapter 2 in the first couple of verses that the former life, is, is something that we all have to deal with the reality of. It is something that is a reality in the past. And if we're being honest, we all know this, it is a reality that we still deal with even now. And so understanding the place of grace in our lives and understanding that, and if I could say for a first point, that grace eliminates or excludes our works understanding that is the first step to stepping into authentic Christianity and being able to show up with our whole selves, to be able to honestly engage with the world around us and with fellow believers to say that, look, I know how I used to be, and I know that my used to be is clinging on to my right now also. I acknowledge that, and I acknowledge that the salvation that I experience and enjoy right now It is solely of God's grace. And so regardless of how well we may try to dress it up, whether in our congregations together or whether on the workplace with anybody else, the fact of the matter is once we continue to acknowledge and express that it is only by God's grace that I have this position in Christ, that is the first step in realizing authenticity in the places where God has planted us. So the first thing is that we understand that grace excludes our works, and we have to acknowledge that. But not only does grace exclude our works, grace exalts God's work in us. And so if we go back to our text, we've already looked at verse 8 and verse 9. We've established that our salvation is not a result of our works. So there's no place for boasting, but we see that the work of God in our lives by grace exalts his work in us. So in verse 10, we see, for we are, what, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so when we look at verse 10, again, this is the exaltation of what God has done in us by his wonderful grace in us and so that word that's used there for workmanship is a Greek word called poema, and many believe this is where we get the word poem from and it, and it has the ideal of um, of someone who is a master craftsman who puts together you know some sort of masterful work of art whether it's a sculpture, whether it's a painting or maybe a poem, whatever that may be, the workmanship is, 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 is qualified by the, the one who actually does the work. And in this case, it's God who does the work. It says that we are whose workmanship. We are his workmanship. When you look in the original, you'll see that the, uh, that the emphasis is placed on not so much the workmanship, but the who behind the workmanship. The quality, the purity of the work only receives that that value because of the one who put the time and the effort in to fashion and mold that masterpiece. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So there's that in Christ motif again that we mentioned. And so it makes me wonder... um, when I think about this craftsmanship, if Paul is maybe reflecting on possibly Acts 19, if anyone's familiar with that passage, this is the story of Demetrius the blacksmith, if anybody knows who that is. And so he was was a a maker of of, of idols. Uh, And in particular, um, he and several other craftsmen created these idols to Artemis, the goddess of fertility. Well, what happens is Paul shows up starts preaching Christ, and the economy starts to tank around idol development. So Demetrius gets upset, gathers a number of his craftsmen, and he says, you know what, this guy Paul and this gospel is bad for business. We need to do something about this. So then they go out into the city square, raising all holy heck, going off and just declaring how great Artemis is, and it causes a riot in the city. And this is all because Paul preaches a God who is not made by the hands of men. Rather, he speaks of a God who makes man or who has already made man in his image and through Christ is recreating them into the very image of God's son, Jesus Christ. So the text doesn't say it, but given the fact that that whole riot happened in the city of Ephesus. I wonder if Paul's mind rolls to that as an example, considering that their economy, their way of life, the things they did were embedded in idol worship. But we see clearly here in the text before us that God is not concerned with idols that look like him or represent him. He's concerned with those who he created to reflect his image and his glory already, He says that you are my workmanship. I've crafted you. I've molded you. You are the express image of my purpose and my glory in the earth. And so he says, again, you are my workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so, again, first point was that our works are excluded Second point is that God's work is exalted, the work that he's done in us for us to be his workmanship. But then third, we see that God's grace establishes God's work through us. So our works before we came to Christ were excluded. They merit no favor before God. Secondly, God's grace exalts the work that he's done in us by fashioning us into his workmanship. And now we're going to see where God's grace, it, it establishes the work that God is doing through us and wants to continue to do through us. And so when we look back at verse 10, in that, in that latter part, it says that we were created in Christ Jesus for what? good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this ideal of good works really connotes the ideal of good deeds, things that are done um, for the common good. And so I know that even in this series of sermons that are being done, we're looking at all of life and where the gospel has implications for us. But I would contend that when we talk about good works and you know the focus many times for me is on um, the workplace especially the work that I do and that I've done over the years but good works aren't just relegated to the workplace where we're getting paid right it's whether we're out in the community which I know this church is really focused on being a light in this community It's whether we're in the grocery store and how we show up there and how we maybe even interact with the people that are on the aisle with us or the person that's taking our money. It could be when we're walking our dog in the neighborhood. It doesn't matter. Wherever we show up at, because we are a good work created in Christ Jesus, guess what? Good works should follow us. And the beauty of this text is that God has already prepared these works for us. There's nothing that we have to contrive or try to conjure up by thinking real hard and having veins popping out of our heads or anything like that. God has said that I've already prepared these words for you beforehand. I'm already guaranteeing that because of how I've divinely designed you to be my workmanship you're going to be able to step into these works and be able to do that which is going to glorify me and bring honor to my name. And so a couple of examples with this, and again, with that with that word um, to walk in them, that word that we mentioned before, peripateo. actually throughout the book of, um, of Ephesians, we actually see that in the latter half is where we actually see this word show up more prominently, in imperatives, or in other words, where Paul is commanding them to walk in a certain way or not to walk in a certain way. And so, if you would indulge me just for a few minutes, I'd like to highlight these. And this is, um, and I, and I'll be the first to say this is not something that I've coined or or uh, or 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 um, trademarked or copywritten. This is this is this is known theology. So this isn't something new uh, when we talk about the walk of the believer and and what that looks like as a new creation in Christ as we saw on the screen and being God's workmanship. But I do want to highlight it um, because again, the question was how do we show up authentically in the places where God has called us, whether at work, at play, or anywhere else he may have us. And so I want us to turn first, if we will, to Ephesians chapter four, verse one. And it reads, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to what? To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience and bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So when we think of the good works that God would have us to do that he's prepared beforehand for us to walk in, this language starts to pick up in these latter chapters. The first place we see that is being able to walk in unity with one another as the body of Christ. And so when we think about the good that we want to do or the good that we say that we do, the question is, is it marked by unity? Is it marked by a togetherness that is, that is um, empowered by the Spirit's enabling? Or do we find that when we are in fellowship with each other, at work, at school, at play, do we notice that division maybe follows our activity? This, this is stuff that we really have to look at, not even myself. And so the apostle Paul opens up for us that it's not just enough to linger in chapters one through three and talk about our calling and the theology and sit on it. What does it actually look like? What do these good works that God has prepared beforehand, what, what qualities do these works have? And one of them in the first one, if we're picking up the language from um, verse 10, verse one says, our work should be marked by unity. But not only that, if we look further down in chapter four at verse 17, it reads, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must what? No longer walk. So we have a negative here. So you should walk in unity, but here you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their what? Their hardness of heart. And I'll skip down, and if you read further down, I'll skip down to, uh, let's look at verse 22, or 21 rather, it says, assuming that you have heard about him, well, verse 20 says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. So again, picking up on the fact that verses one through three talk about our calling, it's talking about doctrine and what we know, now that we talk about how we should live, verse 20 says, but that is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life. Again, if we think about chapter two and those first couple of verses, it talked about the old life and trespasses and sins. And it talks about, it is corrupt through deceitful desires in verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So we're to walk In unity. Our good deeds, our good works, whatever they may be, should be marked by unity, but it should also be marked by a life of holiness and righteousness that does not look like the rest of the world. Now we know from the scriptures that does not mean that we're not going to have those days where that old life shows up. So we're not going to excuse that, but we do acknowledge that We have those days where our mind and our activities roll back to that. But the scripture is clear that when it comes to good works and doing those works, which God has already prepared, holiness should follow. The way that we conduct ourselves, the way that we present ourselves, and in particular in those verses, it talks about sensuality and greediness and and wanting to practice every kind of impurity. The desires that we have should be totally different than how it used to be. You know, the apostle Paul throughout his epistles talks about this, the, these, these desires waging war within us. So there's a, there should be a conflict there. There shouldn't be a level of comfort with living or acting out in the ways that we used to before. That conflict is a good sign that yeah the spirit is at work doing some battle and that's a good thing it may not feel good but it is assurance that the lord is at work in our lives and so understanding that unity and holiness are two qualities that should show up in the good works that god has prepared beforehand for us also too if we look at chapter 5 verse 2 paul commands that we should be imitators of god as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Anything that we do as believers, as those who have been fashioned in the image of God through Christ Jesus as his handiwork, it should reflect, the love that God has shown to us through his son Jesus Christ and so again wherever we show up at and some of you may ask well how do I show love on the job well there are many examples of that I'm sure that we can think of just even in the way that we interact with maybe that difficult person who always gets on our nerves how many of us have that person there at the workplace you probably have a face in mind or a couple of faces in mind right the first instinct might be to say some things that are a little off color, like my buddy from way back when, I've just got to be me, so I'm going to say what I'm going to say. <laughs> and that was often what he used to do. And he'd be like, okay, let's, let's go in this back room and talk about this. You know? But when we do have those moments where we're confronted with individuals that maybe are difficult to love, difficult to deal with, this is where remembering the former life has Purpose. When we understand that maybe that person who's acting out like that, or maybe engaging in a way that's less than favorable for us, when we understand that that person, especially if they are not a believer, and we and we know that, you know, we can't assume, but if we know that that person's not a believer, we understand what that is. We understand that that person is incapable, first of all, of pleasing God. And we already know they're definitely not pleasing to us, right? But if we understand that they are dead, they they have no ability within themselves spiritually to curry or merit favor with God, and many times that spills over into other relationships. And so that should help us to posture our hearts to be humble when we engage people that we know are outside of the family of God. And so the quality of love should show up in our patience, in our, in our speech with those individuals. But again, unity, holiness, love. Verse 8 in chapter 5 says that we shall walk as children of light. So even the things that we do should be such to where it's Exposed, It's in the open. There should not be a hint of anything that's going on to where we should be ashamed to show up as Christians and say, yes, I serve the Lord Christ. Again, that doesn't mean that we're perfect, but we should be able to acknowledge that regardless that I am a child of God. And if we're being honest and being true to what the word has instructed us to do, even when we have those days where we're not our best self in Christ, we're able to acknowledge the fact that I need to confess to my brother or my sister corporately and in private with the Lord because that is one of the graces that God has given us so that we can stay in right fellowship with him, acknowledging that though we are saved and though we have been fashioned and are being made even more into the image of Christ, we are not God. That's the one thing we need to continue to remember. We are not God. And unfortunately, and, I've, and, I've, and I must confess, when I was a young believer, and I've seen other young believers do this, when they come to know Christ, they've got a head full of steam and about an inch worth of knowledge in the Bible. And it's like, they're going to go out there and tell everybody about Jesus and everybody's going to hell and all of this. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. Wait a minute. You have been saved by God through Jesus Christ and you are constantly being sanctified and made into the image of Christ, that doesn't mean that you are him though. (laughs) That's the reality. And so when we, (laughs) and so when we, when we, when we think about the life in Christ and think of uh, walking as children of light, we walk in such a way to where we are, able to be seen, our deeds are before the world. And again, even on those times when we mess up, when we will, and when we do, we're able to acknowledge that this is a reflection or the ripple effects of the former life, but I still acknowledge that I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. Though this is an echo of a life from a time before, I'm still who God has declared me to be. And we can stand on that amongst our brothers and sisters and amongst the rest of the world and not feel like we have to be in shame when those things happen because we still acknowledge the fact that it's because of what you just saw I have to lean on the grace of God. And I employ you, whoever you may be, to do likewise. So He commands us to walk as children of light. And lastly, in verse 15, he commands us to walk in wisdom, to walk in wisdom. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And so for the sake of time, I'm certainly not gonna go through all the rest of the verses Past chapter 5, but suffice it to say that as you read further in Ephesians, you start to see where the apostle really starts digging into relationships. He starts digging into the marital relationship. He starts digging into relationships with, with parents and their children. He starts dealing with the relationship between, at that time, slaves and masters. I mean, some people try to make clear parallels between that and the workplace. There are some differences there, but I think you can see some implications there, but the bottom line is this. We live our lives unto God, not by our works that we thought merited favor with God. At the end of the day, we are not saved by our works, but we are saved unto good works because of the good work that God has wrought in us through Christ Jesus by his glorious grace. And so, just as a reminder, and probably because I didn't make it as clear as I should have, I like to be repetitive. But if nothing else, I want us to remember that we should always fall back on God's grace because it's God's grace that eliminates our failed attempts and works at trying to merit favor with him. It's God's grace that exalts his work in our lives to be his workmanship, to be crafted and molded into the image of his son, which we see that language also in Romans 8. But also, too, it's God's grace that establishes God's work through us to be a blessing to the world around us and to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so my encouragement is that we will live a life of grace with each other in fellowship with one another and with the people God has called us to engage with and interact with in the world, whether that be in the workplace, whether that be in the community, whether that be, like I said, could be at the grocery store, it doesn't matter. Let's be people of grace and live out the grace that God has shown us um, in our everyday lives. Amen? Amen? Amen.